Thanks, Tim, and the worship team. Good morning, Highland. Good to see you here. Uh, there were about 35 of us who were here yesterday for a leadership day. It was a grand day. There was uh, so much good conversation, prayer, Bible study, as well as planning for the year. And next week, uh, both in the service and then in the congregational meeting, we are going to roll out some of those things that were planned and prayed and uh, determined to be the course of direction for us for this next year. So we hope that you will make sure that you're here uh, next week as we talk about uh, these uh, uh, sorts of important issues for Highland Community Church. Max Weber was a German philosopher, and he is considered to be one of three founding creators of sociology. And Max Weber wrote about a style of leadership that births new social movements. Uh, he called uh, this leadership style the charismatic authority. So he said that the charismatic leader is one who is instilled with unusual power and influence so as to have an unusual capacity to inspire others and to build strong loyalty to himself and to the leader's mission. Now, Weber went on to say that the movement's existence rests almost entirely upon its leader, so that the absence of that leader for any reason can lead the movement to dissolve, disappear, or morph into something much different than the original vision. So he says that in order for the movement to survive the loss of its charismatic founder, the movement had to somehow build the charisma of the founder into the life of the organization. So let's take Weber's sociological understanding and put the movement called Christianity under this microscope. So first of all, we have the founder of this movement. His name is Jesus Christ, charismatic in every sense of the word. Would we not agree with that? Truly, he was the most charismatic figure that has ever walked this earth. So he inspires others to follow him. We know them as the 12 apostles. So he uh, dies. He is raised to life. His resurrection and proofs that he indeed was alive further reinforced all that he had taught and it reminded his followers that everything he said could be trusted. Well, he ascends into heaven, so he departs. The founder of this movement is now gone. What is the movement going to do? It's in a state of flux. How will it survive? Will it endure? Will it continue to go forward? So, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes to the earth in a fresh way, and indwells his followers so that the very same spirit that empowered Jesus to all that he did now indwells his followers so that they are able to do and to continue the work that Jesus began. So truly, what a remarkable sociological perspective on 
the Gospels and the transition into the book of Acts. Uh, we're beginning a study uh, in the book of Acts as we begin the new year. And as we jump into this book, I want us to take a few moments to understand some of the principles and the guidelines by which we should interpret and then appropriately apply this book. So, first of all, we need to understand that the book of Acts is neither a gospel nor is it an epistle. The book of Acts is a history book. And the fact that it is a history book should impact how we interpret it. Not only is it historical, but it is also a transitional book. Uh, it moves uh, us from the age of Jesus in the Gospels into the age of the Spirit. And so because of these two realities, that it is both historical and transitional, we want to be very careful in, in how we understand and apply this book to ourselves. Uh, it records the sermons of Peter, of Stephen, and Paul. And in these sermons, we have some great theology, powerful theology in this book. And so we see the book of Acts as not just being a historical book, but it is a theological book. It contains doctrines that we need to study. In addition to it uh, containing theology, it also records events. It describes what happened in this transitional historical period, and it has great value in that role of describing what happened. Now, when you think of historical books in the Bible, of which there are, are a number, when we study them, we, we want to realize that there's two paths that we can take in interpretation and, more importantly, application. One path is, to, is the descriptive path, in that what is written here is an accurate description of the events that are contained in that story. The second path is what I call the prescriptive path. So the question comes, when something is described over here, does that mean that what is described here now becomes prescriptive or normative for all people at all times and all places? And that's where a little bit of the tension lies. There's the description of events, but how do we know if what is described is also prescribed as being normative for us? So I'm going to give you a, one of the tools that people who are very serious students of the Bible use. When we come to historical narrative, as much of the book of Acts is, as we study what happened, we can develop a proposition, a supposition, a principle that we think describes what happens. So when we come upon that proposition, what we want to do as we're looking at historical narrative is that we want to look at the other theological books. We think of the words of Jesus in the Gospels, or we think of the epistles. And so what we want to do is that we want to get affirmation from those books as to the proposition that we have tentatively, tentatively uh, 
developed out of that historical narrative. So that if there is affirmation over there of what we have seen here, we can teach and apply that and say that is not just descriptive, but it is prescriptive for us. Now, if we find that the proposition that we have looked at in this historical narrative cannot be affirmed in some of the other theological books, we want to tread very lightly in saying that what happened here should be normative for all of us today. Does that make sense to you? Some of you, I just kind of went right over your head, you know. And I, I, I was talking to the fellow between the services, and I realized that sometimes I, I put things on a shelf that very few people are interested in. So if you were interested in that, that's okay. Let's jump in now into the book of Acts. As we look today at uh, this book, I want us to think uh, of the role of the Holy Spirit. First of all, His work, His mission in a believer's life. And then we're going to look at the work of the Spirit in His mission through believers to the world. So uh, for the, a number of years now, I have summarized the work of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life in these four ways or four works of the Spirit. Now, the great message of Christmas is that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Emmanuel, God with us. The great message of Pentecost is that God the Spirit is now with us and in us. And so what does He do in us? And so we come to Romans 8 and verse 16. Paul writes and says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So the first work of the Spirit when He comes into a believer's life is to give them assurance. Assurance that comes from God that indeed we are His children, that we are loved, accepted, redeemed, and forgiven. That is so incredibly significant, is it not? To know that we are the King's kids. We belong to Him. We are free. How wonderful that is. His work, however, goes deeper than just simply having this assurance from God. In verse 15 of Romans 8, Paul writes, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So the second work of the Spirit is that He gives us fellowship with God. By virtue of His Spirit dwelling within us, we are able to cry out, Abba, Father, or in the Hebrew language, Daddy. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. In the Old Testament, there was one name for God that no Hebrew Jewish man or woman would ever say. It was the most sacred it was the most hallowed of all his names. It was the name Yahweh. When a Hebrew was reading Scripture or in any other literature, and he or she came to the word Yahweh, they would substitute the word Adonai. 
because they were fearful of uttering that most sacred and hallowed name. So that was the context of the Hebrews in the Old Testament. But now we come to the New Testament, and by virtue of the Spirit of God living within us, we call God Daddy. Do you understand the significance of what has transpired? To go from a, a, a fear of saying the name of God for fear that your life would be over to be able to come into his presence and say, Daddy, I'm coming. I'm crawling into your lap as your child. To have that type of intimacy with our Heavenly Father. So incredibly rich. And that is why the Apostle Paul elsewhere writes and he says that our choices can grieve the Spirit of God. The fact of the matter is that the Spirit is a person. He has feelings. And our choices, our actions can either bring a smile to His face or they can grieve His personality. Because of the presence of the Spirit of God in our lives, we have an intimate fellowship relationship with Him. A third work of the Spirit of God in our believers in Romans 8 and verse 13. Paul writes, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So here Paul talks about another work of the Spirit, which is that of transformation by God. Paul adds in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18, he says, And we all, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into His likeness from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That's what the Spirit of God does. He is transforming us into the image and the likeness of Jesus Christ. The Spirit's presence gives us a power to be overcomers to live the victorious Christian life. It's part of who we are, to access that power. And so the fourth work of the Spirit is in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 7. Paul writes, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. He's referring here specifically to spiritual gifts. The Spirit of God has given to us gifts that we are to use in our service for God. So we not only have a, a cluster of gifts, but He calls us to serve Him in particular places and particular times. So these are the four works of the Spirit. And I want you to know that the prepositions are incredibly significant. First of all, there's the assurance that comes from God. There is the fellowship with God. Transformation by God. We don't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We surrender to His power in our lives. And finally, there is the service for God. So, the book of Acts now is going to be a book that is primarily, not exclusively, but, but primarily focused upon that fourth work. That the Spirit of God is going to be involved in empowering us 
for service in mission to the world. And so in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, we have this profound word, but you, Jesus speaking here, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So let's talk about the Holy Spirit in mission to the world. Three statements in regards to this verse. First of all, it is the Spirit of God that initiates mission. When people are immersed in the Spirit, they will be witnesses. Now, in the book of Acts, this is going to be a very, very important word for Luke. He uses it 30 times. Uh, it is loaded with meaning and significance. It, it speaks of being an eyewitness of the life and ministry of Jesus and also being an eyewitness of His resurrection. Very important. To be an apostle, you had to be an eyewitness of His resurrection. The Greek word for witness here is the word martyreo. It gives us our English word martyr. It proved to be prophetic, did it not? Because all the apostles except for John was martyred, uh, were martyred for their faith. Now, in Acts chapter 13, uh, the, the, sh the scene is shifting from Jerusalem to Antioch in the north. And so the church in Antioch is going to be a center from which Paul will disembark on his three missionary journeys. And we're told in Acts 13 that the leaders in that church were gathering together. They were fasting. They were praying. They were worshiping the Lord. They were seeking the Lord. And in the context of that worship experience, we're told that the Holy Spirit spoke to them and He said to them, Set apart for me Barnabas and Paul for the work to which I have called them. And so here in Acts 13, we have affirmation that it is the Holy Spirit who initiates mission. Mission does not originate in a senior pastor. It does not originate with staff members. It does not originate in elder meetings, nor does it originate in leadership days as we enjoyed yesterday. Mission is initiated by the Holy Spirit. As we are seekers of Him, we become sensitized to His voice and to His promptings. And it's in that context that the Spirit of God then moves us into service. And that is why the, the worship ministry here is very excited about drawing us into the presence of God, creating an atmosphere where we seek Him. And as we seek Him, we become very attentive and alert to what the Spirit of God is saying to us. I cannot tell you how excited it is, how excited I get, when I have sensed that we have worshipped. We've just felt the Spirit of God descend upon us. I could run up to the pulpit to begin to teach and trust that through the Word that God's Spirit is going to speak. 
I received my call to ministry. I was at a, uh, a campus crusade conference. It was years ago when they were still called that. Today they're called crew. But I remember I was in college, and, and I went to this conference because I was seeking Him. I wanted to be growing in my faith. I did not go uh, to this conference anticipating any sense of a call to full-time ministry. But I will never forget the, the, the words of the speaker who said something which just struck me. I was just seeking Him, and in that context, He spoke to me. And for the next several months then, I sought affirmation from others as to whether, was this what God was really calling me to do? It was the Spirit of God who initiated mission in me and also in you. Number two, the Holy Spirit empowers mission. The Greek word for power here in verse 8 is dunamis. It gives us our English word dynamite. All 28 chapters in the book of Acts is a description of the power of the Spirit, of the Spirit of God flexing His muscle. I encourage you to do a study of all 28 chapters, just writing down the places where you see the power of the Spirit on display. It is remarkable. You know, uh, fitness centers today have a lot of mirrors, don't they? From floor to ceiling mirror. And I'm wondering, why? Is it really necessary? You know, when, when you're 30 years of age and you're buff, you know, it's okay to have that mirror because, you know, as, you, as you're doing the exercise, that sort of thing, you can flex your muscles. But, you know, when you're a senior, <laughs> you don't go to a fitness center to show off your muscles. You know, I, I, think, I think the mirrors could just shrink. In fact, there should be a rule in a physical center that the older you are, the smaller the mirror becomes. But I digress. The book of Acts is a mirror of the Holy Spirit flexing His power and muscle. When you read the book of Acts, I want you to see on display the dunamis power of the Spirit of God. He is the one that empowers us for mission. And number three, the Spirit overcomes barriers to mission. Now this verse provides an outline for the book of Acts. It shows the ongoing, developing, expanding work of Christ so that they start in Jerusalem, it'll go to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so this expression of the expansion of the kingdom needs to be understood in three ways. First of all, we should under the, understand the statement geographically so that Beginning with chapter 1 through chapter 6 and verse 7, we see the, the gospel taking root in Jerusalem. So that in chapter 6 and verse 7, we read this. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem 
increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now, beginning with verse 8, there's an interlude, and this interlude becomes the hinge that opens up the next section of the book. It's the story of Stephen and ultimately his martyrdom. And so after he is martyred at the end of chapter 7, we come to chapter 8 and verse 1, and it says, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered, notice, throughout Judea and Samaria. And so beginning with chapter 8 through chapter 9 and verse 31 is a description of the gospel now heading into Judea and Samaria. So that in chapter 9 and verse 31, we read this summary statement. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. So we're seeing the geographical expansion. Now in chapter 10 and 11, we have the, the introduction of another person. This is Cornelius. And, and that opens up a whole nether area because Cornelius is a Gentile. And so we have the conversion of Cornelius, which creates trouble in Jerusalem. We'll see that in a moment. But ultimately, it, it moves to chapter 13, where the center of mission has now moved from Jerusalem to Antioch. And it's in the context, then, of these worshipers that Paul is set apart for his missionary journeys. And so from Acts 13 through 28, we have the third major section of the book, which is that of the gospel to the ends of the earth. So we understand it geographically, firstly. But it also should show of the Holy Spirit overcoming the barriers racially and culturally. Because you see, Samaria was not only a geographical region, but it was also a people group. The Samaritans were considered half-breeds by the Jews. You see, in 722, the Assyrians uh, took over the ten northern tribes. And over the course of time, Jews began to marry with the Assyrians, and so they became the Samaritans. And the Samaritans were no longer welcome in Jerusalem, so they formed their own mountain where they would worship and their own methods to their worship. And so they were at the low end of the social calendar. And so what's happening here is that the gospel is, is penetrating the, the Jewish people, but it's now it's expanding into Samaria and these half-breeds. That's very, very significant. In addition to that, uh, we have in chapter 8 that Philip leads an Ethiopian eunuch to faith. Peter leads a Roman centurion to faith in chapter 10. And, of course, these two people were Gentiles. So in chapter 11 and verse 2, word traveled back to Jerusalem that Peter had actually engaged with a Gentile. And so the circumcised believer came to Peter and they said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and you ate with them. In essence, they're saying, Peter, there is bacon on your breath. And so he tells them about God leading him to Cornelius. He shares the gospel with Cornelius. Cornelius gives his life to Christ. And 
there is a Pentecost experience for the Gentiles in chapter 10, even as there had been a Pentecost for the Jewish people in Jerusalem several chapters earlier. And when Peter describes what happened to Cornelius, their conclusion is this. So they had no further objections, and they praised God, saying, So then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. And so we see that it is the Holy Spirit who is overcoming geographical barriers. He is overcoming cultural and racial barriers. But thirdly, he is also conquering evil powers. Just an overview of the Spirit confronting the evil, dark underworld in this book. Chapter 5. The Spirit of God overpowers Ananias and Sapphira who have lied about the size of their gift. In chapter 8, in Samaria, the Holy Spirit overpowers Simon the sorcerer. Chapter 13, on the island of Cyprus, the Holy Spirit overpowers Elimus, another sorcerer. In chapter 16, in Philippi, the Holy Spirit overpowers a demon-possessed slave girl. And finally, in chapter 19, in Ephesus, there's a summary statement that there's so much spiritual power in overcoming darkness of the underworld that people brought all of their idols and they burned them. And so there's this summary statement of the Word of God spreading. You see, it is the power of the Spirit that's overcoming all the barriers to mission. The mission that Jesus gave to the apostles in chapter 1 and verse 8 is so vast that it's going to require a significant amount of power. You know, as guys, if you're into cars, you know, maybe it's not so much today, but it, but it used to be that guys would ask the question when they see a nice car, what do you got under the hood? Just kind of ask that question. You want to know what's under the hood. You hear that rumble. You say, what do you got under the hood? Well, my, when I was in college, um, my dad uh, bought a used Volkswagen camper van. Uh, it was, I think it was known as a vanagon. It had, had a roof that kind of uh, lifted up so that you could you know, stand uh, in it. It had a little cooler, a little uh, uh, stove, had a bed. And so it was, it was a nice little uh, uh, camper van, and he bought it for hunting. The problem, and, and German engineers are generally really good about these things, but for some reason, they put the Beetle, the bug engine, it was a four-cylinder, 50-horsepower engine. They put that little motor in this van. And so I loaded the van up uh, one fall uh, because I was needed to bring some things down to Northwestern College where I was attending. So I, I drove the van down full of stuff, and then on Thanksgiving weekend, I'm bringing it back home. And as I'm driving on Interstate 94, I am driving this van into a headwind. I mean, it's a strong headwind. 
uh, and that little lightweight van is going all over the place. And I had the, the pedal to the metal, as they would say, and I couldn't get that van to go over 45 miles an hour. I got 400 miles to go. It is a long, slow drive. And my attitude is becoming very sour, very sour. And so I finally arrive in Fargo, and I turn onto Interstate 29. And I don't get just more than a few miles north of Fargo when a gust of wind gets underneath that roof and breaks the hinge. And so the, suddenly the, the roof comes up like this. Now, thankfully, it didn't come all the way off. Otherwise, I would have had a convertible camper van. So I was glad for that. But I had to pull out to the side of the road and get wires and, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, batten down the hatch. And for the next 130 miles, I couldn't drive more than 30 miles an hour. And by the time I got home, I was so frustrated with that vehicle. The power plant in that vehicle was so inadequate for what it was expected to do. God has given to us a mission of bringing the gospel message to the ends of the earth where there's going to be all kinds of spiritual forces of evil that will oppose us. If we're going to have that kind of a mission, we need a power sufficient for that, do we not? And what is the power that God has given to us? power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. We have the power of the Spirit. You know, if you've been thinking that you could live the Christian life, you could overcome some uh, uh, of your habits and your addictions under a lot of self-effort, are you worn out yet? I hope you are. Because when we come to the end of ourselves is when we begin to draw upon the presence and the power of the Spirit. The song says there's power in the name of Jesus. There is power today for you. And so would you begin to access that power rather than wearing yourself out doing it by yourself. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that there is a power plant in the person of the Spirit of God that gives us all we would ever need to experience assurance, intimate fellowship, personal transformation, and service you. Lord, what does a believer have under the hood? The power of the Spirit. God, I pray that there is someone here today who has worn themselves out by thinking they could do it with New Year's resolutions. But Lord, they would realize that it's surrender. It's the filling, the seeking of the Spirit of God that brings 
what we so covet and desire. And so, Lord, thank you for the message that you would have for each one of us today. In Jesus' name, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray.